Good Wednesday morning. I'm your host, Craig Flood, recording from Boise, Idaho. And today, John is going to be answering a question from the audience. And now let's hear that question. Well, good morning, folks. Well, good morning for me. Who knows what time it is when you listen in this emerging world. Um, I had some interesting questions this week. And I'll start by talking briefly about each of them. The first was a question from a doctor about another doctor uh, who I didn't know about, who's got a much bigger profile in the world at large than I have. And the question was about the Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm. Well, the first thing to say is that isn't in the oath. Um, you always hear it said. It's a kind of summary in a way, but it's the usual manipulation of words. But it's not in the oath to begin with. But the world in which Hippocrates and his physicianly friends worked had no effective treatment. Diet, rest, uh, that was about it in many ways. Nothing that they did was equivalent to modern medicine. And in particular, they said that you shouldn't take a case where you thought there was no possibility that the patient would recover. That's very different from us, a huge difference. And to that extent, it was first do no harm. Um, if they're not going to recover, tell them they're not going to recover. Prognosis and understanding disease is what mattered. And you could tell them, you know, take some, as little exercise as you can manage, uh, eat sensibly, rest a lot. That was it. So uh, first do no harm was a sort of, pragmatic approach to not undermining the medical profession. Yeah. And of course, if everybody had agreed up to this point and we never did anything with any risk attached to it, we'd do very little, but we'd probably have a great deal of trust for what we did. But of course, given human nature, that's not going to be the way we go, and it hasn't been the history of medicine. Uh, the other comments from that about the Dr. Atia and his approach brings me to make a comment about nutrition. I do wish people would stop talking about nutrition when they know nothing about it. Um, talk about food, uh, which has more social and psychological importance as well as the nutritional re requirements of the body. And the way to look at claims about eating tincture of this or tincture of that or uh, modifying your diet is to be a little more sensible. First of all, it's extremely difficult to be certain about nutrition because there's so many interactions between foods. And you're looking, if you're looking at a, a correlation table, it is incredibly unlikely that you'll get to a serious answer. Um, the second thing that I always go to is to, as soon as somebody makes a claim, I ask myself, now let's think about travels around the world and see what happens uh, to those claims. Now, many of them are about you'll live longer. Well, a lot of people have studied aging, and the really interesting thing is um, there are two or three groups of people, very primitive people living in very poor parts of the world who have lived a very long life, traditionally for a long while. Most of them have a very simple diet, one of them smokes 60 cigarettes a day. I mean, they've got nothing to do. 
they don't have a rich diet. They don't have supplements on the table at every meal. And they've done fine, thank you. In fact, they can even resist the drawback to tobacco. I don't know why. I know of at least four communities in the world that eat a very fat, high-fat diet and have virtually no heart disease. Interesting to study, but they certainly make the case that your diet at the level of thinking about fats is uh, a bit simplistic. Of course, whenever you talk about a high or low fat diet, by definition, you're also looking at the opposite for carbohydrate. So if you watch your carbs and you want to bring them up or down, whichever you choose, you're doing the opposite to your fat intake, by definition, because your energy comes primarily from those two groups. There is a bit from protein, but the variance in how much protein you eat is very small. Uh, it does appear that many low-protein intake uh, communities live a long while. But of course, historically, if you were a a nomadic herding group, then you had the highest protein intakes in the world because you lived off your cattle. Uh, the most interesting example is probably the Maasai, who traditionally uh, basically said they never ate vegetables or the men never ate vegetables, and they lived off a combination of blood and milk. They actually milked their cows, and they shot an arrow into the jugular vein and and let put some of the blood into the milk, and that's basically what they lived off. They got a bit of iron out of that um, blood and a few other odds and ends, but they managed to do quite well. Uh, all the other tribes were frightened of them. They were amongst the most effective slavers of the African content, to raise another politically incorrect uh, comment. But it is important to remember that sla the slaves that came across the Atlantic... Uh, were sold to the slavers by other blacks. Uh, they didn't go charging all over the continent, at least on the, on the uh, for the American slave trade. Now the Muslims got as far as Central Africa. They did far more slaving than Caucasians. Uh, they don't have the problem of uh, an African community in their society to get very angry at the moment because they rather smartly, at one level, chopped off both the penis and the the testicles of every slave, male slave they took. Uh, that made sure they didn't get their genes contaminated um, that way anyway. So, uh, uh, one needs to be careful. And, of course, Britain was at its healthiest nutritionally at the end of the Second World War when... Uh, Rationing had been a piece of applied science which was really excellent. The question that faced the British in 1940 was, is the food supply going to be adequate, particularly when the, the German submarines, U-boats, were being so effective? And they asked, fortunately, some very smart people what to do, and they came up with the recommended daily nutrient intakes, or whatever you want to call them, recommended dietary intakes. They've got multiple names, but they were never intended for individuals. They were intended to see that the food supply was adequate. Now, a good percentage of the food supply gets wasted. Others gets diverted into other usages. And so they quite smartly said, okay, we better look at our best estimates. And they set it at the mean plus two standard deviations. 
except for energy, which they set at the mean. Setting the intake for everything else at the mean plus two standard deviations means that by definition it's more than 95% of the population need. Um, it turned out at the end of the war, as I said, uh, we were nutritionally healthier because we had less fat. Uh, and so we didn't get as much heart disease probably related to that. But who knows? You can't prove it. Uh, we had very very little obesity because there was only enough to keep people going. Uh, we had very little diabetes. Hypertension was way down. So we know that that more minimal diet is actually better for us than the ones we eat now where we have largesse available everywhere. And it's probably excess in general that's the problem. I can give you a nasty outcome of almost every supplement on the market. That's not good news. If you're eating to appetite from a variety of sources, you won't have any major problems. And if you do have a problem, it needs a diagnosis first, not a supplement first. Save a lot of money. Uh, I, when, I, on my, when I was traveling a lot before COVID came along, uh, I, I like staying with people rather than hotels because hotels are not nice. And I would always look in the kitchen cupboard to see what they were taking in the way of supplements, and there was usually a few hundred to a thousand dollars worth of stuff in there, none of which was actually necessary. No one in my family has ever taken a supplement, uh, except my wife occasionally, where she gets older, will listen to something and surreptitiously take them before I throw them away. Not needed. So. The doctor that was quoted uh, by the questioner is one of those doctors who tells you eat this and you'll do well. Anyway, they can be entirely sincere, but I very much doubt the science would withstand uh, any rigorous investigation. So that's question one. All right. The first question is about Peter Atia. He's an MD in his book, Outlive. He talks about first do no harm and the actual words of the Hippocrates and, oh, and actual words of Hippocrates as hopelessly naive and almost useless. And he'd be yes. interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, I, I dealt with the, the nutritional part of Dr. Atia. The, the, when I talk about the Hippoc Hippocratic Oath, I have much more respect than almost useless. I think it's an incredible insight uh, several centuries before Christ. And when you look at the oath and think about it, it has, from my perspective, four key characteristics. Um, the first one is how it opens. I vow by Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. Interesting. Now, Christians took that oath for many centuries. Uh, we wouldn't do it now uh, because we've become less sophisticated than we used to be. They took it in that form to honor the people who thought about it. Of course, the oath was only valid for them in insofar as they uh, made the oath to the God they believe in. But what's at stake is easily illustrated by what I often use as the opening sentence when I'm talking to doctors and I want to get under their skin a little bit. I say, just rationally, are you going to trust a doctor more or less 
if he believes that he will be judged for his behavior after death. That's a no-brainer. It's obvious that if somebody genuinely believes they'll be judged for their behavior after death, they will rationally be more trustworthy than a Darwinian who's doing the calculus of the genes, because a Darwinian will actually be asking, if I can get away with it, would I be better off killing this guy? They're not actually doing that, but they're getting close now. We are killing patients in increasing numbers. Canada is leading the world. It used to be Holland and Belgium, but that's where we've got to. And the states are doing it as well. And administrators love it because they're short-sighted and they don't see what it's going to do. So that was the first thing that the Hippocratic physicians did because they realized that trust was important. And so they looked around and asked the question of themselves, how can we increase patient trust because that will have good health outcomes? And they realized in those days, as now, doctors killed patients because when patients die, money changes hands. So there's all sorts of conflicts of interest and all sorts of opportunities for bribes. So if we proclaim to the world that we will not take part in any of that, we're going to cut off some income for us. I mean, they made a sacrifice, but we're going to get trust out. And it took several centuries for the Hippocratic physicians to win because people could, they're not stupid. They realized when you went to a Hippocratic physician, you were more likely to be alive at the end of the exercise than if you went to the other guys. And nobody challenged that until basically the late 19th century. And that's astonishing history that most people don't know. So that's the first thing. If you don't, if your physician doesn't fear for his own soul, you better start fearing your physician. Uh, the second thing is that the Hippocratic physicians realized that medicine is not primarily about technique or about science. It's about morality. It's so deeply ingrained, we don't even think about it most of the time, but now it needs to be thought about again. Because when a patient comes to see me, do they have to take my advice? Well, until COVID came along, the answer was no. And it would have been better if that had been the case in the COVID exercise too. But that's my opinion. Uh, so if they don't have to take my advice, what am I doing? Well, I think that the job of the physician is to help them understand what you believe to be their problem and help them to decide what they ought to do. Now, ought is not a scientific word. It's a, it's a word from philosophy or theology. And we are all oughted, we know that, uh, in Peter, Fra Peter Crave's phrase. So what I do is help them to decide what they ought to do. And it can be for all sorts of different reasons, uh, very different in different parts of the world. I can remember talking a moment of truth in this area, talking to a woman in Africa, and uh, she had an operable condition. And uh, I was somewhere, we were somewhere, I was in a village, and I explained it to her. And then she said, How much will it cost? And I said, Well, look. There is some payment involved. You're going to have to get your family involved. The missions will do it as cheaply as possible, but 
they have some charitable funds, but not enough for total bills. Uh, so I told her, and she thought about it. She said, no, I'll stay here. She said, if I do that, my children will not get educated. That was nobility, wasn't it? She looked at the reality and said, I think it's better that my children get educated than I get cured. That's, you can only bend a knee in front of such behavior. Um, but it illustrates beautifully the issue that medicine is about, helping people to decide what they ought to do. So the next thing is that the doctor, in order to be worthy of that and to make it very plain to the patients that that is the case, said, I will not do abortion and I will not even counsel suicide. Now we're doing both. We're counseling suicide again. We've made. Uh, we've been doing abortion for some time. Abortion has always happened and that's another big discussion. But these guys said no. And finally, they added something else that we're destroying. They said, I will guard my life and art in purity. I'm not asking for you to respect my conscience. I'm telling you I will not go against my conscience. And what people did is see that's perfectly reasonable, and they granted doctors rights of conscience, which our politicians are now wanting to take apart. Now, if Dr. Attia had talked about those four points, uh, I think he would have been more useful. Thank you, Brent, for writing in that question. Is there anything you want to add, or do you feel like that wraps it up? Well, it's enough for now. Uh, by the way, if you're interested there, uh, you can find on YouTube uh, a talk of mine given in the University of, let's say, Wisconsin some dozen years ago, called What Hippocrates Knew and We've Forgotten. Yeah. Um, it's been up all those years. It's never had huge numbers, but it's a few thousand now. But it's fascinating to read the comments. I mean, a lot of people, when they hear this approach, they say, the guy's an idiot. I expect that. But there's always that little stream of people who say, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. Why don't we get to talk about that in medical school? Why doesn't anyone teach us that? You know, that's a wiser approach. You don't have to agree with me, but surely anybody can see that what I've just said is not stupid. It's historically accurate, and it, it has some depth to it that makes sense in life as a whole. Pretty so uh, it's there. So somewhere, put, put my name in and what Hippocrates knew, we've forgotten, and you'll find it. I'm sure YouTube lets you find these things at the moment, unless you've said something so politically incorrect that they take it down, but I don't think this one would come in that category. Mm -hmm.